Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's event. Very pleased to have you here this evening. Those of you who've been coming quite regularly to the events at the Middle East Centre this term will know that Tuesdays we've been using to invite distinguished speakers and commentators on the Middle East and North African region to talk about some of the important new books that have been coming out in the region. We've been having authors in. And this evening we have another very distinguished and very respected writer and commentator on the Middle East and North African region, particularly uh, North Africa. Hisham Aloui is a regular contributor to the media in Europe, the US and the Arab world, including the New York Times, the BBC, Le Monde, and most notably Le Monde Diplomatique. And in fact, just recently, it was just this year, I think, his contributions to the Le Monde Diplomatique were collated into a volume entitled 25 Years, 25 Ideas. I thoroughly recommend it, having read it myself. Published in both English and French. His previous books include Journal d'un Prince Banni, Diary of a Banished Prince, which recounted his upbringing and experiences as Mouli Hisham ben Abdallah al Alawi in the royal household in Morocco. A graduate of Princeton and Stanford universities in the US, he went on to help found research institutes at both universities, the Institute for Transregional Study of the Contemporary Middle East, North Africa and Central Asia at Princeton, and then the Arab Reform and Democracy Research Program at Stanford University. He also founded his own foundation, the Mouli Hisham Foundation, to foster research in social sciences in the Maghreb and the Middle East. Now, when he decided to return to academia in 2014, we were particularly delighted that he chose to come to this university and this college to study for his doctorate. For his thesis, he decided to focus away from his native Morocco and look at two other countries in North Africa, specifically Tunisia and Egypt. As the first two countries that experienced the popular eruptions and upheavals that would swiftly become known as the Arab Spring or the Arab Uprisings, Egypt and Tunisia attracted particular attention, especially as trajectories, their trajectories progressively diverged, uh, with Tunisia consolidating, certainly for a short while, a democratic system, whilst Egypt reverted back into dictatorship. Now, quite a lot has been written about both countries' experiences, and even comparatively, but this divergence, Dr. Aloui, adopted quite a, a, an insightful and novel approach to understanding what exactly had happened in both countries by applying a framework that was developed outside of the, of the Arab world. The idea of pacted democracy has thus been used to explain and analyze democratic transitions and indeed democratic failures elsewhere, most prominently in Latin America, but really hadn't been applied to the Middle East and North Africa. And this changed with Dr. Aloy's doctoral thesis, his um, DPhil thesis, and resulted, the result was really quite enlightening. And not only produced an excellent PhD, but also now a book published by St. Anthony's Press in the Palgrave Macmillan series entitled Pacted Democracy in the Middle East, Tunisia and Egypt in Comparative Perspective. And we're therefore delighted to have Hisham Alawi with us here this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Willis, for this 
very generous introduction. You were delighted to have me here. I was honored to be here, and I'm extremely grateful to all the colleagues, the student body at uh, St. Anthony's, and to the community at large, as well as to many of the faculty who helped me and who guided me through this endeavor, notably you, yourself, and of course, uh, Professor Rogan, who is present here, whose advice was also very valuable to me. 45 minutes we have, so I'm gonna walk you through at a brisk pace, It'll be the pace of a, uh, of a gunnery sergeant. We'll try to do it in 45 minutes because this is really very dense. So, as you see, this is a copy, uh, the cover of the book, and ultimately, or in terms of uh, the substance of the debate, is what the prospects of, uh, of democracy in the, in the Maghreb and in the region. Regretfully, the, the democracy debate is strictly seen through the Islam democracy nexus in the West, and that's due to this uh, Orientalism or Oriental trope which dominates the debate and which basically dampens all the other theses that can emerge on this discussion. And so, briefly, I will not read every bullet point because they are up there, and for the purposes of saving time, I will just talk briefly about you and allow allowed enough time for you to read through the, the bullet points. So uh, Islam and democracy debate is historically seen through two angles. The first are the skeptics, and they are the example, or the uh, example by excellence is Bernard Lewis that argues that Islam is allergic to secularism, in fact, completely averse to secularism. And democratization requires a separation of politics from religion, so as such, there cannot be any uh, democracy until this issue is resolved. On the contrary, others, uh, and of course in its, in its more extreme view, this thesis will contend that, in fact, sometimes you need military intervention to get the region out of its backwardness. And it's not an accident that Bernard Lewis was, in fact, the, uh, the fulcrum, the intellectual fulcrum around which the intervention in Iraq happened in 2003, as he was. Uh, then a, uh, an advisor to both the Pentagon and the White House. Now on the other side of the spectrum, you have others that say this is reductionism. And they are optimists at the core, and I just choose a name here, arbitrary name, but there are others that, are, that belong to that category. Uh, Aziz Sashadina, for example, argues that we can reinterpret Islamic tradition and scripture to produce liberal outcomes. In a sense, what this school of thought or what this, this category calls for is essentially going back to scripture, looking at scripture carefully, looking at the hadith, giving more place and more weight to the hadith, and looking also at the, the prophetic example of the life of the prophet in which one can extract ethical and the whole dimension of ethics which is absent from this debate. Uh, I'd like to clarify one important point about uh, Islamic history, and that it is very hard to overlap, or it's very hard to, to transpose the Western experience to the MENA region, for the simple reason that secularism never emerged in the region until, basically, until the more uh, direct contact through the protectorism and colonialism with the West and after the Western domination of the region. Then we begin to see questions of uh, secularism emerge for the simple reason that the state monopolized the role as sole interpreter 
of the religion, whereas before uh, you had basically all of society, whether in mu'amalat, which is that aspect of life which deals with institutions and societal relations, and the, the, the private sphere, which has to do with worship, if you will, the transcendental link uh, with God, these two dimensions were entirely up to the private person or to groups or to the state, provided that groups and that individuals respected the precepts of Islam, and hence it was up to the ulama to regulate that space. It was not the state. It was the ulama who regulated that state and who could intervene on those two spectrum. And hence the problem of secularism or secularization never posed itself in the same way in our region. So, as a result of that, I, uh, you know, I propose a new framework, as, uh, as Professor Willis uh, suggested, and that's bringing politics before theology. That's my position. In other words, as presently framed, the Islam democracy nexus is a theological question. And that may take generations to resolve, and theological contestations, disputations about whether Islam is, is compatible to democracy or not is a matter that can take literally, you know, centuries to resolve itself, and even then, they may not; these issues may not resolve themselves. So, in the real-world scenarios, regardless of interpretations about Islam, politics comes to the forefront. And if anything, the Arab Spring is another example by excellence because the Arab Spring erupted into into the political sphere unannounced. And basically, it has posed a problem. Politics is here. What do we do? Every time there is a demonstration or every time there is a law to be enacted by a new parliament, we're going to go back into these debates. Politics, the fluidity of politics cannot accommodate this reality which is present and which has forced itself upon the lives of people. Or rather, people have forced it on, uh, on societies. So what is the basic element or the elements to our puzzle? In the Arab Spring-style revolutions, the Ancien Regime suffers popular breakdown. And we've seen that in Tunisia, and we've seen that in Egypt. But these regimes, as we have learned, never go away. They stay in the background, and they lurk in the background. In the case of Egypt, they've stayed very robustly in the form of state institutions and of state organizations, but in the case of, of Tunisia, they've known, you know, a kind of shock and awe experience, so they've kind of destabilized, but, you know, as soon as they're given the occasion, they come back to the forefront to play a role in politics. But in that interim, what, this is my, my major thesis, and it's an assumption, and I, I know some will, will challenge me on that, is the following. In the MENA region, during such transitions, two political forces will compete for power and that's Islamists and, and secularists. And each has an incompatible vision for the political order. Secularists see no place for religion in the future new regime, while uh, Islamists see that uh, the hakimiyah of God, that is God's sovereignty, must uh, be the central axis around which politics organizes. I contend that this is the salient cleavage in all these societies. This is the salient cleavage that will rise to the surface, no matter what happens. That's again an assumption I have in the study, and of course it can be challenged, and we will we will discuss it and see its uh, its its validity, and we will put it to the test as we go along in our discussion. 
So for the post Bin Ali uh, Tunisia and the, and the post Mubarak regime uh, furnished two great studies. Why? Because they happened at the same time. One is a case that succeeded relatively, although now Tunisia is knowing some backsliding, but, to, but I will briefly discuss why, for me, this does not invalidate the fact that it still succeeded as an electoral democracy, not a consolidated democracy. And on the other hand is the post-Mubarak regime, which, as you all know, has known an interruption by the military. The military have ceased uh, or have basically stepped in to uh, put a halt to the experiment. So I begin by introducing this new term about pacted democracy. And my pacted or pacts are essentially ways or refer to bargaining uh, modes, bargaining arrangements that have proliferated in the 80s and 90s in the third wave of democratization, what Huntington, Samuel Huntington calls the third wave of democratization in the 80s and 90s, essentially in Latin America and uh, some places in Asia, a few countries, like maybe South Korea and in the southern Mediterranean, talking essentially about Portugal, Greece, and uh, Italy, also Spain. And that negotiated bargaining or that way of approaching democratization has been very prevailing during that time. And it refers to essentially bargains uh, between ferocious rivals. And here I say to myself, and this is the big leap, this is the contribution of this book, that after all, this is not something we can apply only to the divide left and right. We can apply it to the divide secularist and Islamist, even if, if the terms of the debate are not about economics, but they're about ideas, norms uh, that are deeply held by the actors, i.e., wanting religion outside of politics, like for secularists, or wanting religion at the heart of politics, like for Islamists. So I say, maybe there's something to look at there. Maybe the pacts that have worked in Latin America can, can apply to Islamists and secularists. And once these pacts uh, start or kick in, then the whole idea, as I say in my last bullet point, the, uh, of institutions that come out and of organizations that come out and the nature of the new regime that takes shape is in fact subsidiary to that pact which begins or which inaugurates the political process. Note a very important term here and namely that term is about uh, its toleration. Now toleration refers to agreeing on laws. It's not tolerance. Tolerance is the acceptance of other, the acceptance that there may be another point of view. That can come afterwards. Toleration is accepting on rules that we're going to apply to all of us. So again, keep in mind, for your own uh, use, the distinction between, between the two. Here are some very important uh, historical pacted democracies. I've only want to show three because they're, I think they're emblematic of the 80s and the 60s. The one is the first on, on your left up uh, above is the pact between Nelson Mandela and Frederick de Klerk. It's in 1994 and it is between a basically repressed population of, of blacks and the supremacist movement uh, on the other side which is basically exercise hegemony over the rest of society but still behind that is still the distinction between left and right, 
because uh, those holding most of the resources in the countries were then the white population, and the black population, of course, has known a lot of uh, prejudice, economic prejudice. Then you have the Pinochet pact with the opposition. It happened in 1979. I use that for a simple reason, because it is the only case I, I, I know of where it's not a pact, where it's a it's a referendum, the referendum of 1979 that inaugurated the transition. After, the, after Pinochet lost that referendum, which he thought he would win, then there began bargaining for the future of the transition. And of course, you have the mother of all pacts here is in 1975, and you have Franco and, and Juan Carlos in that picture. That is a transition that has um, many comprising elements to it. One is uh, left and right divide. One is also uh, the heart of Europe. It's very important. And also the restoration of the monarchy. This is not the monarchy conducting the pact, but in fact, the monarchy coming resurrected from that pact. It's a case of restoration. There are others we could have gone for, but this is not about that. Very briefly, just to, to remind those of you who know, who know about this theory and just to introduce those who don't, uh, the essential dynamics here is between the regime and the opposition. And those that begin negotiations are essentially the, the left wing of the right, the left wing, because they're closer to the, to the right wing of the opposition. And they are the softliners on the regime that feel that, that that regime has no future and that essentially it's important to see beyond the regime and to negotiate and they want an exit out. And you have the moderates uh, in the opposition who are not diehard uh, militants and who would like uh, to give certain guarantees and assurances to the regime so it can exit from the scene and the and everybody can get started with the business of building the new, uh, the new order. If this were to bring us back to, to the old slide before then, Frederick de Klerk, there would be no place for pick Bota in this uh, scheme of things because he was simply just too radical. In the same way, there would be a place for Walter Sisulu who had the place, but no matter how respected and how established maybe somebody like Stephen Biko was in the beginning of the pact in South Africa, he would, maybe wouldn't have had a place uh, in the, uh, at the table had he lived. He, of course, died uh, in 1978, I think. So how do pacts work? Again, remember, and we'll come back to this, the pacts are between Islamists and secularists. Now, we're now past the third wave where some would say we're still in the third wave, but we're not in the Latin American or uh, African context. We're now 20 years ahead, and we've resurrected, we've exhumed this pacted theory framework, and we are now putting it to the test. So keep in mind, as the first bullet point says, Islamists and secularists are in the background. So how do these pact work? For a pact to succeed, you need three conditions. You need ideological polarization. That is, you need to have two actors on, on both sides that occupy diametrically opposed poles in the spectrum of ideology, and their conflict is intractable. They just cannot resolve this conflict. It's just, they are too opposed. But again, ideological polarization has got to be acute. It cannot be severe. If it's severe, then the situation is unresolved, and it cannot be resolved. And it's the case of Algeria, 
between the FIS and the military that led to the bloody decade or the, the decade of civil war. Another example is Guatemala, where uh, simply the, where the polarization was not only acute, but severe. And then you have parity of power. The more, the more equal footing these actors are on the basis of, of power, uh, the, more there is, uh, the more there is an encouragement, the more they are induced to begin the pacting process. And then there's normative dissension. Normative dissension is a very difficult term, but I'll try to summarize it. We may agree all that we want a democracy, but we may have disagreements. Shall we take federalism instead of a unitary state? Shall we adopt a proportional representation instead of um, a winner past the post? Shall we discuss you know, uh, decentralization rather than centralization? These are examples of normative dissension, and they can be really nagging problems. They can be so, uh, so powerful that they can, uh, that their shadow can loom heavily on a transition, and then you can, you basically have a stalemate, and that that induces people to negotiate. Paradoxically, the more present these three parameters are, in combination or independently, the more encouragement there is, and the more the necessity to enter into a pacted into a pacted transition. So the theory goes, of course, these are conditions for pacting. Now beyond this, and we'll talk about this, there's structural parameters that uh, have to do with the country in particular. Does the country have high levels of edu education? Is the economy well performing? Does it have distributive functions? Uh, are there less inequalities? Is the army in the barracks? Or is it present in public life? Those are all background conditions which facilitate the transition, the transition, but they are not the conditions for pacting, to have a pact to begin with. These are the pacting. So the theory goes, once you begin your pact, once you resolve this, then people, actors, are habituated and start to negotiate and to go about the business of conducting politics. You conduct politics in a normal day-to-day -day life, and you're habituated to the fact that every five years in the month of June or September, you need to have an election. If you're gonna change something substantial about the Constitution, you need a referendum. That's what I mean by habituation. So, the critical issue here about, about pacting conditions, polarization, parity, and normative dimension are necessary to create the deadlock between Islamists and secularists. That's what I said before. And this is the criti critical juncture that forces arrivals to recognize the logic of pact. Now, when you read through this slide, I'd like you to begin with the second bullet point. So, you're going to ask me, you're going to say, well, you know, if pacting, if the pacting transitology framework has ceased to exist, or not ceased to exist, but has taken the back seat after the 90s, then where has it gone? Where has it gone? Why can't we not talk, why can't we not apply the other frameworks of transitology, like colored revolution, to this area of the world, to the MENA region. Why do we have to go all the way back to pacts? Surely you're missing something here. And my, and my replica to that is as follows. In colored revolutions, which have basically checkered, which have basically spread like wildfire through uh, Eastern Europe, they had a logic, and the logic was the following. Basically, the, the, the regime in place was a single-party regime that got all its, uh, all its support from Moscow, and after the Soviet Union collapsed, 
essentially it was left orphaned with no, with no help. So all these regimes, all these simply found themselves bankrupt, both politically and economically. There was no reason to act because these regimes were bankrupt. They had basically to exit the scene and people came up en masse against them in the street and that's what they called colored revolutions. Now, many of these regimes or regime elites did manage to organize themselves in another party called Renewal Party. They came up with fancy names, but they were all about old communist cadres that organized themselves and decided to run the state in a different way, uh, using uh, liberalized economies and so forth, but within the framework of another regime, and they basically dominated politics. Now, these regimes tried to dominate politics by creating a competitive authoritarian regimes. That is, regimes that allow for elections to happen, but the, the playing field is so much slanted in favor of the dominating party that that party stayed in politics for maybe five parliamentary uh, cycles, even three, five, look at Romania, look at uh, Bulgaria, all, all those countries are late are latecomers. So, collapse of the communist regime, competitive authoritarianism, and then after competitive authoritarianism, you have a democracy. Now, why is that not possible in the Arab world? I say it's not possible because regimes in the region are hegemonic. They will never allow, and they do not allow, for a critical mass of uh, freedom in the society. Freedom is not democracy. You can have democracy, either you have it or you don't. But you can have regimes that have, on a spectrum, have different shades of liberty, different indexes of liberty. And the more a country is free, the more you have the prospect of a competitive authoritarianism. So that will lead into democracy. It's not the case of hegemonic autocracy. There is no genuine competition. Now, that doesn't mean theoretically that these regimes or the one that we see now that are authoritarian cannot take the comp competitive authoritarian route. It's just empirically they don't do it. Now, we can debate you know, for a long time if it makes more sense or not to take that route of competitive authoritarianism than to lose everything. The point is that empirically, statistically, they don't do it. And this is an empirical observation that I uh, basically collected and registered and built upon uh, my thesis. Why? Comparative authoritarianism here is a legacy of the Cold War. It's a legacy that has uh, come about due to the collapse and the demise of the Communist Party. The hegemonic autocracies of the Middle East are legacies of the colonial era. They are legacies of the colonial struggle in which Certain elites have won and have essentially shepherded the state after independence. And hence, they are entrenched regimes. Many of these regimes feel that their raison d'etre is to protect the state, to protect the independent state. They are the, if you want, the, uh, the Praetorian guard of the new regime, the, the Algerian uh, uh, military, uh, the Egyptian um, uh, in the Egyptian Republic, the army and so forth. They are uh, hegemonic uh, actors. So here's my argument about these transitions in the Middle East. So we have a transition. First, you have a rupture. You have people on the street that demand change. Sooner or later, the regime cannot deal with that. Repression is not enough. You have a rupture. 
after the political deadlock. Immediately after, you have mutual recognitions of all the actors at the table and they begin to be bargaining. And then you have the democratic transition which begins. Plug in Tunisia here and you can see what happened. After the deadlock, Ben Ali goes, then you have uh, actors at the table, Nahda being the Islamists, the other components or the other elements, the other vectors of the transition also sit around the table and start to discuss. The democratic transition ensues and then institutions begin to, to emerge. It's important to realize that after the democratic transition, you can have a second round of pacts. That is, you can hit a, an impasse after your first power-sharing agreement and then be forced by political deadlock to again begin a pact. But the important thing is to realize that the more these pacts go on, the more a transition is frozen. It's not a good sign to have more than two pacts within a two transition. That means that society is left behind and that elites are basically finding ways to perpetuate their place in the shade. So the pact involves opposition forces, not the regime, in the beginning. Then the regime comes in, like in Nida Tunis or like in Egypt. This is a big difference. In Latin America, the military was negotiating to leave. It was an extrication. They negotiated with the opposition to leave power and to leave power with guarantees. Here, the negotiations between opposition and the regime members is to stay in power, possibility to stay in power. So it's very hard to explain this without going into much detail, but you, you will see this playing out as it takes, uh, it takes form in the next slides. So this is the case of Tunisia. Remember Tunisia. Ben Ali exits the scene, and you have the opposition emerges. Nahda, which is the Islamist group. Ghanoushi comes back from exile. Uh, the networks reconstitute around him, and you have two others. CPR and Itzakatur, these are the secular strands. And that is equivalent to the, to the initial starting point of the Jasmine Revolution. Then you have Nahda, the Islamists and CPR pacting, and after pacting, the regime starts to build its own, its own institution. Then you have the second pact that comes along. Uh, CPR and Itzakatur are basically voted out, and Nida' Tunis, which uh, rallies around uh, Beji Qaid Sibsi, who is basically a figure of the Bourguiba regime, who stayed clean and who basically was able to rally around him the old regime uh, elements. So you see how the old regime comes? It's not about extrication. These are not like Pinochet or actors, you know, and the, on declare according, who basically pact to exit the scene. The, the pact happens between Islamists and secularists on the nature of institutions, but the old regime always comes back to the forefront using sometimes another disguise. So I will take some time to briefly explain here what happened. In 2011, when you have your, uh, your uh, Ben Ali leaves in January, as soon as he leaves, all these political actors we see, there's no pact. They all coalesce together in the beginning, there's no pact. Because all of them cooperate. It's not about power sharing. Always cooperate. Why? They cooperate for a simple reason. They want to make sure the old regime does not come back. They want to make sure security services don't come out of their police stations, start beating up people, and Ben Ali comes back from Saudi Arabia. So they all coalesce. They create this, uh, this instance, l'instance supérieure pour la protection des valeurs de la, de la révolution, 
pour les acquis de la révolution. And then, basically, they establish a roadmap on how to go for the future. So the roadmap is creating a national constituent assembly in which that constituent assembly is going to have an election and, P and, and the parties will occupy seats proportionally to the electoral gains of that uh, electoral exercise. That's what happens beginning 2011. The <coughs> elections are held for the National Constitu Constitutive Assembly, I believe, in October or, or November of 2011. So we're just at the bottom of that arrow where the, where the sphere of the arrow is situated. And Islamists win the lines, you know, the lines portion of that body. Immediately as soon as that happens, we have, we have a problem. Why? Because the raison d'etre of an Islamist party is to make sure that Sharia remains in the constitution and that religion stays in the public space and that religion stays at the heart of political life and public life. So very early, just here, I'm here. I'm here in that line over there. It takes us to the arrow. And you have the secularists on the other side, represented by CPR and Itakatur, and they say no. This is not what we want to talk about. We want a, a state, Dolamadani, civil state. 2012 is punctuated by three different conflicts. One is the conflict of the place of Sharia in the Constitution. Two, the role of women. And thirdly, which is, a, which is an extension of the first, it's about blasphemy. Now, strangely enough, and this, is, this was the point at which I realized that Eureka, my thesis, you know, it was all coming together. I realized that I made the right bet. At that moment, that precise moment, at the end of 2012, Nahda basically relinquishes every single demand. It abandons the place of Sharia in the Constitution. It abandons, in fact, all reference to Sharia in the Constitution. It also abandons the idea of complementary roles for women and men, for the role of women in society. It abandons that, and it abandons blasphemy. So I ask you rhetorically the question, why would a political actor, why would a political actor who just won a major political victory relinquishes and retreats on the basic tenets of his platform? Why would he retreat? And the reason why he retreats is this, and I'll go back to it, it's this, acute ideological polarization. It's unwinnable. Nada realizes that it cannot win. This is a battle that it's one not winnable, and at the end of the day, if he persists in demanding, in, in keeping those demands on the agenda, basically, all political actors, both political actors, risk self-annihilation. So it's Hardcore realist thinking. It's not about religion, it's about survival. And as you see, religion comes after, or rather politics comes before. So he concedes that. The crisis for the moment, at that time, end of 2012, it subsides a little bit. Come 2013 and the crisis 
ignites again because there's so much doubt and skepticism on the part of the of the Takatu. This is, this is a strategic cynicism on the part of the Islamists. They want to pull the rug under our feet later on. And 2013, you have two events, which is the death of two or the assassination of two of two political figures who are in the secular camp, Shukri Bilaid and uh, Hamad Brahma. And you have also something which is very important. You have these literally floods of jihadis going from Tunisia to fight uh, with Daesh. So you have this happening in the Tunisian context. And again, polarization ignites. And we're asking out of the Nahda more concessions. But what more can a Nahda do? Enter the quartet. The quartet enters at, in March 2013. It enters into the political scene and organizes, in fact, it's an auxiliary mechanism of the pacting itself. Pacting is taking place, but here you have a structured platform for, for pacting. Mind you, before 2013, when I came to the realization that the Nahda retreated, that the victor retreated basically and gave away his gains, uh, one of the findings I found, and I, I, I got this from, from uh, the President Marzuki in an interview, he told me, yes, or oh, you call this pacting, or oh, this is interesting, pacting comes from Latin America. Oh, I didn't know that, uh, you know, but we negotiated. And I said, how? I said, oh, said, every Friday, I brought people into the presidential uh, palace, and we negotiated different things, and we, we basically uh, agreed on things. And then Tuesday, we let everybody think for the weekend, during the weekend, and absorb this during the weekend. And Tuesday, we had a little secretarial office, a rapporteur that would see would verify that all that we agreed on was basically put into motion and implemented. So there you go, the pact is there. Because by the way, ladies and gentlemen, uh, pacts are either secret or they're open. In the case of Spain, they were open. They were the Pact de la Mancola and it was open. In the case of other, in, in other places, they were secret. They were like, uh, like Oslo, done in a, in, a, in a hallway someplace, but they're pacts nonetheless. So. I was seeing it, in, in fact, function. So 2013, fast forward again, big crisis emerges. And then Mr. Ghanoushi does something else. He disbands the Salafi. The two Salafi groups disband them. So why would he disband two groups which could have constituted for him a reservoir of political support? It's not his ideology, Salafism is not his thing, he's far away from it, but still, he would be antagonizing his own cadres, his own rank and file, by saying this is not enough. Yet he did it. Why would he have done something like that? Then he does something even more. In the same year of 2000, he says, I am going to accept Nida'at Tunis, the old Ali's Cadres, I'm going to allow them to run. I see no opposition that they run into. They run for parliament and they have political posts, of course, except for those who have blood on their hands and who have committed crimes. And it creates even an uproar for the secularists. Why would he do something like that? The reason, again, polarization. He wants to reassure. He doesn't want mutual demise of uh, the two. Plus, there was something else. Tunisia was winning on the international scene. Tunisia was recognized as the only bright spot in the Arab world. And it was getting help on the part of the internet, from the international community. Not enough, if you ask me. But 
This is uh, one of the reasons why he did it. Then he does something even more. And that's an example of pacting. He abandons the idea of uh, premiership uh, parliamentary system. The secularists want presidentialism. The Islamists always in the region, remember this, do not like presidential parties because they know by fielding a candidate in the, in the context of the presidential election, they will always lose because it's too, it's too scary. It's too divisive. So he abandons parliamentary and he goes for a semi-presidential system. So that's a major concession too. Constitution is finished in 2014. Yeah. So I want you to pay attention at this line. 2014, Nidat Tunis wins the election. What does Nidat Tunis do after really having gone on a campaign of denigration against Ghanoushi? He wins the election. He literally gets up, gets up, gives his hand or extends his hand on the other side of the aisle, of this ideological aisle, and calls in Ghanoushi for his government and says, I want you to participate in the government. We will build a coalition together, and you will stay with us in government. You're not the opposition. We are, you are part of the government. Why, did he, why does he do that? Same reason. He sees that he does not want to take the risk of Ghanoushi going into the opposition, and the Islamists going into the opposition, and basically risking mutual uh, self-destruction. Now, I, I want you to keep in mind, I know we're in the Middle Eastern center, but Maghrebis more than Mashriqis uh, feel this, is that the Algerian civil war has had an extraordinary influence on all Tunisians, Moroccans, Libyans, and, uh, and Algerians. And everywhere, the specter of the civil war is very powerful in the, in the collective memory or in the psyche of Maghrebi citizens. And even if the army could not return to, could not come to power for structural reasons because it was, it was marginalized and it wasn't just, it never had a role inside society, he wouldn't, all the actors had that specter in mind. And for Ghanoushi, there was no way to risk civil war. The army wasn't going to step in, but the security services were going were to step in anyways. We don't want this. Having lived in Algeria and then in London, he also saw how Islamism could be readapted and so forth. For Bejiqay Sipsi, who was a seasoned politician, also very experienced, he knew that there was that specter, and he did not want a Nahda radicalized, and he wanted the process to be more inclusive. So that is an example of a pacted transition that has worked. We will come back very quickly to talk about uh, backsliding regarding the Tunisian case. Now, this is very briefly, I've explained to you, I've talked, uh, I've evoked all these points in great detail without showing you bullet points. So basically, it's all the it's steps uh, that we talked about of the different pacting and of the different, basically, the unfolding and the trajectory of the uh, post-Ben Ali regime. Here, I talk about the same thing. I have a, a picture here which is very dear to me. I'll say why, because in March, uh, of 2013, it was a conference that, that we sponsored in Tunis that knew the first handshake between Ghanoushi and Beji Qaid Sibsi after the assassination of, of the first, not Brahma, of um, 
Shukri Balaid. Thank you. In March. So it was the first time where we had participated in the pacting. You know, the quartet came in in the end of that year. We, the Stanford ARD program was before. The only difference is that, you know, the quartet got a Nobel Prize. I was kicked out of the country. But, but, <laughs> but it's a very, it's a very important, it's a very important moment for me personally, and I, I really cherish it. So now, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in Tunisia. As you all know, being the smart people you are at the MEC, from electoral democracy we have backsliding, and we have backsliding into populism. And I think uh, the archetype example of populism is Viktor Orban. That's why his photo there, if someone exemplifies this, it's, it's his. Populism, essentially, I'll tell you a few points about it while you read through the slides. Populism, essentially, it's about it's about direct democracy. It's not about representative democracy. It's about direct democracy. It's a personalistic leader who comes to power and who says, the problem is with elites. It's not with the people. The people is virtuous. It's the elites which are corrupt. And this, in this case, Kaisei came to power and said, look, Tunisians are virtuous, but the real problem lies with the elites, Islamists and secularists alike. And he basically uh, sanctifies that, or basically gets the mandate from a direct uh, exercise, a direct consultation, which is uh, a referendum, and he cooks up this internet exercise, whatever you can call it, you know, cyber exercise of elections, and uh, also says, look, what populists, what all populists say, we're going to close up the press. We're going to purge the administration from ele all elements that resist this uh, noble enterprise. And we're going to reshuffle the, the judiciary so that our laws pass through. Populists in general go through a very well-regimented um, and very well-studied uh, you know, uh, uh, script. We're not going to go through it now. But basically, it says you know, this is a, a, a case of direct exercise in democracy and basically does away with all the safeguards of democracy that have to do with separation of powers and oversight mechanism. The problem with the Tunisian democracy, and I state, with it's not that the transition did not work. The transition worked, and Tunisia became an electoral democracy. The problem is the consolidation, is sinking the roots of that democracy so that no other player contests it, so there's, it becomes the only game in town. That's when consolidation works. And here there's been a failure of consolidation and not of transition. That is something I had to add uh, in the book because I was comforted by that, because of course this backsliding came after, just after COVID. Now we go to Egypt. I'm going to take five minutes to go through this uh, because it's a simpler case. The regime Mubarak basically is overthrown by a massive uh, street mobilization, and what emerges is basically the Muslim Brotherhood and the secular civil groups, and on the one side is the Egyptian military. So I struggled a lot with that. How can there be polarization? How can there be all these, all these conditions when you have a third player here, which is basically foreign or alien to this polarization spectrum, the military regime? And the way I resolved that by saying, look, when there was pressure, when there was pressure to break 
the legacy of the old regime, the military, it wasn't in its role as, as the relay of the old regime. It was simply the guarantor of peace and social peace and stability. But what emerged to the surface was this fault line, was this fracture between the, the Muslim Brotherhood and the secularist counterparts. And in fact, it's a fracture that stayed. The military never would have wanted to relinquish power. It would have probably found any good excuse to come back to power. But the point is, it was, there was pushback in the beginning. It was in retreat. All these actors gave it the possibility to come back to the scene. Let me go very fast through this transition to the, uh, as chemists would say, the stoichiometry, the chemical reaction of the trajectory. So the Muslim Brotherhood, on the one hand, and civil society advocates begin to discuss uh, you know, the future transition. I'll remind you that in all these transitions, it was the street. It was the youth calling for the espousement of universal values that won the day. But they didn't, they didn't preserve the, the transition for themselves. They just retreated into two roles of observation. That's a digression. Uh, it's not a digression. It's an important point which, which you got to keep in mind uh, all the time. So what happens in 2011? 2011, Benin leaves. Just like in the Tunisian case, all the actors coalesce together because they want to make sure the old regime does not come back. They want to make sure that Mubarak stays in Sharm sheikh or stays wherever he was and that the old regime does not come back. So there's a glow to revolutions when it happens in the beginning. It's everybody, everybody's happy, everybody's uplifted, everybody's elated. That's something that's characteristic until the hard problems settling. Then you have, immediately after, you have the beginning of uh, the political process that begins. The Muslim Brotherhood turns to the military and tries to accommodate the military. And basically the military tell uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, or agree with the Muslim Brotherhood, to ram through a constitution, to impose a constitution while the civil state advocates wanted a Tunisian-type transition that, every, that this got to sink in, we need time, we need consensus politics, we need to deliberate on these things, there's no need rushing. The Muslim Brotherhood rammed a constitution through, and what does this constitution essentially? It keeps the causes on Sharia, all the causes which are identity politics, so it does the contrary of what the Tunisian Islamists do, so you have no pacting there, it's a clear case. And it satisfies the military by basically giving it all the uh, you know, enclaves of military sovereignty concerning budgets, concerning its role in the protection of the nation, and so forth. So that's a moment of pacting that has been missed. And it, it's a tragic moment. That was the moment, really the moment, where everything went off the rails. Then we come to elections at the end of that year. At the end of 2011, they had, if you remember, elections that were played out in several tours. It was a very complicated scheme, uh, very complicated institutional design. Anyways, by 2012, January 2012, the Islamists had won a major victory. In fact, they had won proportionally more than the Tunisians had won in their uh, national constituent assembly. So January 2012, the Islamists won. At that point, it was bound to happen. The military started seeing that you know, this was a threatening actor. So failure of pacting 
in the first instance, in the first occasion, created two things downstream. One, it alienated the civil advocates, which, were, which could have helped the Muslim Brotherhood, and it also basically sowed doubt in the, in the Egyptian military, which did not want to see. They were not going to let you know, Mubarak come and to see these Islamists come to power, even if they, it was a imperfect but democratic election. I am going in brushstrokes because uh, you have to understand that in every transition context here, uh, there is a lot, of, uh, a lot of events, it's very fluid. There are a lot of movements and counter-movements and everything has to do about identity politics, about economics and so forth. You, can, you imagine, you people know what, what, what the transition is all about. So I'm, I'm proceeding with large brushstrokes. Brush then in June 2012, Morsi ran for the, for the election. I think it was, yeah, June 2012, Morsi runs and wins. Here's another error which he did. Should have never run for the election because it was his pledge for the Islamists who would never run the election. Yet, they ran for elections and they won. By immediately after, within weeks, the military could not wait anymore and it basically forced the judiciary into uh, coming out with a decree that the uh, old parliament would be dissolved, the parliament in which the Islamists had won. Then we enter, this is a second case of failed pattern. When the Islamists won the election, they should have halted and say, wait a minute, we're not going to field a new runner for the elections, we're just going to wait and see, and we're going to sit all down together and see where we're going. They didn't. They ignored everything and they continued. And they put the, the army against them, openly against them, and uh, the secularists against them. So when he wins the election, the judiciary comes up with a decision basically to annul the parliament that was already in place and so forth. How does Morsi react? Morsi reacts by basically coming out with a decree that says, my decisions, presidential decisions, trump everything else, period. Presidential uh, decrees, no matter what they are, take precedence over any other juridical or legal document emanating from an, uh, any other institution. By that time, everybody's is screaming foul play. The civil state uh, advocates basically are begging the military to intervene. It took from 2012. That situation festered until the coup came along basically one year afterwards. And one year is nothing to, things happen very fast. Mursi could not govern because the deep state was sabotaging everything, whether in, in labor unions, whether in demonstrations, whether in, in gas supply. Uh, there was the debacle uh, around the, his trip to Iran. Uh, then you had another variable coming in. Uh, which basically was a geopolitical element. You had Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates who wanted to derail this uh, experiment at all costs. So, two cases of failed pacting. And coming back to the structural reality here, someone you know, who knows these two countries could say, well, wait a minute, you're comparing oranges and apples. You're comparing the Egyptian case where there's an Egyptian military and where there's uh, structural parameters basically are stacked against the success of the transition with a case which is rather, you know, which is rather more encouraging than Tunisia. It has a potential from the beginning of leading to a transition. And I say, yes, but that proves my, 
my argument about whether transgender succeeds or not. And furthermore, had the Muslim Brotherhood really pacted with the civilians, really pacted, it would have been impossible for the military to overthrow uh, that uh, that regime in the way it did. The regime needed a pretext, needed more than a pretext. It needed an alibi for the safeguard of the nation, and the Islamists gave it that alibi by not pacting. So that's how I worked around this. And again, it was another case. These two these two cases of the deterrence that the uh, that the pact could have constituted vis-a-vis -vis the Egyptian military and how one, you know, would would factor in, would place uh, the military in this broader framework. These were two instances where, again, I said, Eureka, and by that time I went to see Michael, and I said, Michael, get me a viva, I've got everything, and it was for me always, you know, the viva, the viva, because it was, uh, it was, uh, it was Latin. He said, no, 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 here in Oxford, say viva. So, <laughs> so, so there we go, it was the viva, and it was the case. So, let me wrap up now, because you, have learned. I've read you through all. Basically, I walked you through it. I think it was more helpful than 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 reading through the bullet points. This is what happened in a nutshell. Uh, as for the Tunisian case, I am I am outlining here the details of the Egyptian transition or lack thereof, uh, and the second failed coup. So, I'm going to end with this slide. These are the contributions. This book makes a modest but a concrete and palpable contribution, I would say, without being immodest. First, I exhume, I excavate like an archaeologist these theories of pacting, and I say, look, they can be applied to not only this, the fracture of, of left versus right, but Islamist versus non-Islamist. And this is what's happening in MENA countries. So this is how it works in new power sharing. Okay, contrarily, Contrarily to other instances of our pacting, this is about, not about the regime exiting. This is about regime wanting to perpetuate, the, the, to stay in the game. And it's about the other actors recognizing that the regime wants to stay in the game. They shouldn't have problems. The regimes want to stay in, in the game and they have the power to stay in the game. Well, your idea should, well, let's see how long we can stay and, and who wins in the end. But after the risk of Self-demise passes or rescinds in the past. No, this is the last slide, yeah. Uh, revolutionary di dynamics, I, I, I talk about it, about this. And then the determinants to successful pact, it's nothing to do with prior seculars in Islamic tradition or culture, but it has to do about the conditions, about the institutions we create. It's about the bargains we strike, as we've seen in the Tunisian case. It's about Ghanoushi uh, saying, look, I am going to abandon certain direct references to Sharia, and I'm going to, we're going to keep the first clause of the, of the Bourguiba constitution, which talks about the religion of Tunisia, a state being Islamic, and the religion, and its religion is Islam, and its ambiguity. What are we talking about? Religion of state, or are we talking about the religion of nation? Fall back on that. That's a pact. So that's what it's about, these institutional conditions, which Islamists and secularists engage one another as relative, uh, as relative equals. So there it is, and uh, I'm pretty much sure that there will be 
a second time around for the Arab Spring. It's a question of debate whether the Arab Spring is finished or not, or whether there'll be a new wave, call it a new wave, a new Arab Spring. But essentially, uh, the problems are still there, and regimes are not performing, and people have realized that they have power and that they have a say in the process. And sooner or later, uh, they will take to the streets again. And I think, uh, given the constellation of forces and given the parity between forces, I think uh, something, a framework like this can be helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much for a, for a wonderful lecture. And it actually is a, an element of, of nostalgia seeing this, because it remembers the discussions we had. And you remember that I was a little bit sceptical of some elements of that. And you convinced me at the time. And you further convinced me again. And it actually you've added even more to the arguments I remember from the time. And also given us a perspective on the future, and particularly what is going on in Tunisia, which makes a lot of sense given what, what you've said here, which actually the, the power of your explanation goes beyond even when in, into what has happened since, in Tunisia since 2021. But thank you very much for that. Thank you all very much for coming. And thank you, Jamal Aloui, for his talk. <laughs>